are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Uh, since tonight we are fellowshipping in new members into the body, I thought it would be helpful to just address some aspects of church life. I remember a number of years ago uh, when I was a member of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals and the discussion came up uh, whether or not we should uh, have a book published on whether or not church membership is necessary. Uh, for salvation, or is it necessary? And of course, it's not necessary for salvation. And uh, we didn't actually commission the book to be written, but we had some very lively discussions because in the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, you had people representing various communions and denominations. And so it was very helpful to have this conversation in such an eclectic or diverse group of believing uh, Christians. And one of the things that came out is uh, we, in, in discussing the matter of the importance of the life of the local church, uh, we often take up the discussion on the importance of the local church on the broadest possible position, such as, is it necessary to be a member of a church in order to be a Christian? And that's the extreme. And of course, the answer to that is no. It's not necessary to be a member of the local church of a local church in order to be saved. Uh, but that's what God has established. I think John Stott put it best in reference to the statement in the book of Luke in chapter two, where Luke's or the uh, the book of Acts in chapter two, where Luke says that the Lord continued to add to the church daily those that were being saved, uh, causing John Stott to remark that all of those that he saved, he churched, and all that he churched, he saved. Now, granted, there are those who are members of local churches that are not saved, but, but they, we can answer that on, on different levels. But the point is, we don't begin on the fringes. We don't begin on the outer Fringes, and then people. When once you start there, is it necessary to be uh, to be a member of a church in order to be saved? Then we could say, well, what about? Then we start coming up with all of these 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 experiences and all of these extenuating circumstances. What if you are? And there we go. And all of those are usually beyond our own uh, personal experience, and they are extremes. They are hypotheticals. But we do need to begin, so on the one hand, we begin with those extreme positions. Is it necessary to be a member of a church in order to be saved? And the answer, of course, is no. And then are the, what about any set of extenuating circumstances? What if you live in a place and there are no healthy churches? What if you are relocated to a particular place and they don't, you know, all sorts of things that we can come up with reasons with. And I think, and so we kind of toss those things back and forth and we said, but here's the issue. Most people don't live in those extremes. Most people, and granted, we know that there are a plethora of churches and every church is not healthy and sound. And so sometimes in order to find a healthy church, it's going to take work and sometimes even years to find it. But the reality is the, the, that, that the ordinary function of, uh, the, of, of, uh, of Christian life includes life within 
the context of a covenant community. There are any number of circumstances, extenuating circumstances, that might prevent that. So let's, let's put it this way. What if a person is claiming to be a Christian and they just choose not to go to church? Does that mean they're not a Christian? And again, we have to say no, that does not mean that. What it could mean is they are not as healthy as they ought to be. Uh, when we look at uh, people in extreme and dire circumstances, uh, we can say that they are alive and they are human, but they are not in the healthiest condition. So I would argue that part of the health of individual Christians is related to their connection to a local assembly. And that's what I want to look at tonight. I want to look at, at uh, the ordinary it's one of the reasons, by the way, the, um, the, the reformers talked about the ordinary means of grace is because we know that God, being who he is, can work outside of those things. But here's the ordinary way in which he works. And so here's the ordinary, uh, the, the ordinary reality of the Christian life as God has ordained and intended. There are extenuating circumstances, some that are excusable and some are inexcusable, but we don't, we don't unsave someone because of their church status. But a lot of times, uh, a person who is connected to a local assembly, uh, they will be, especially if it's a healthy church, they will be healthier than a genuine believer, healthier in their faith than a genuine believer who is disconnected from the ordinary means of grace and the ordinary gathering of God's people. So what I want to do, there are three things that we want to extract from this text, but before we do that, to set the context for it, Understand that Romans chapter 12 is the beginning, as some have put it, as of Paul's practical exhortations in light of the great Christology and theology that he has set forth in the previous chapters. He has talked about the doctrine of election. He has talked about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. So he has laid out all of the aspects, or all, um, many, I shouldn't, I shouldn't say all, but he's laid out many aspects of the Christian faith. And so the audience to whom this text is addressed is referred to in verse 1 as those who are the recipients of the mercies of God. The recipients of the mercies of God which is set forth in the gospel of his son. And so he's speaking to the recipients of God's mercy. And the recipients of God's mercy, another way of putting it, are those who embrace the gospel of grace by faith. And it's to those that he's writing. So the context of, of everything that he says in the verses that we've read and even the verses that follow, and in fact, his practical exhortations carry over all the way through the 16th chapter. But he is addressing, having set forth all of the, uh, many of the major doctrines of the Christian faith and all of the constituent parts of the gospel, it sums up as the tender mercies of God. And so to those who have received the tender mercies of God, it's to you that he says you are to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. As a living sacrifice. The burnt offering is in the tender mercies. In other words, the blood sacrifice is in the tender mercies that you have received. Because the blood sacrifice is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, which is given to us... But from God himself. 
So those who are the recipients of the tender mercies of God, which includes the blood sacrifice of his son, we are the ones that he calls upon now to offer up our bodies, not on the altar, because Jesus has already done that. But instead, what he calls us to do is live out our lives as thanksgiving offerings. And we live out our lives as thanksgiving offerings because of the burnt offering that he's given us in Christ, which constitutes his tender mercies. So the audience to whom he is writing are those that he has, who have received the tender mercies of God in the gospel and the exhortation is for us to live out our lives as thanks offerings to God. The third thing that he says here is that in living out our lives as thanksgiving offerings to God, we are therefore able to discern what is the perfect, discern and do what is the perfect and acceptable will of God. That's his point in verse 2, so that we would know what is the acceptable will of God. Now, in order to do that, he says, don't be conformed to this world. That's, that's why you've been, or you are the recipient of his grace, but be, be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What is it that renews our mind? It's the grace that draws us in. But his point is now having your mind renewed. It's then, he says, we are to do the will of God. So doing the will of God is, the, is, is in fact our living out our faith as thanksgiving offerings unto God because we are the recipient of the burnt offering that's given to us in Christ. Now it's at this point, you say, okay, now I want to do God's will. I want to do God's will. And so it's at this point that the apostle takes us away from self and thrusts us into the body. So all of the, the, the implications and all of, the, all of what it means in essence to discover the will of God using spiritual gifts and so forth, he doesn't leave us isolated. He connects us to the body of Christ. And here's the point. I think that what it means to uh, live out our bodies as th- or live out our lives as thanks offerings to God is first and foremost demonstrated in the context of the covenant community. So he brings us under the rubric of the body of Christ. And that's the language and the imagery that Paul uses both here in Romans chapter 12 as well as in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, He talks about us being part of the body of Christ. And so therefore, in light of that, I want to look at three things. And the first one is this, and we'll begin in verse uh, four, verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5, uh, Paul says, For in one body we have many, uh, as, as in, in our bodies, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. So it's primarily in verse 5. And here's this overarching statement I want to make. The health of the body, and of course when we speak of the body, we're speaking of the church. The health of the body corresponds to the consciousness of the individual parts to their collective identity as the body of Christ. The health of the body 
corresponds to the consciousness of the individual parts to the, their collective identity as the body of Christ. So let's, let's walk through that statement. Just here, because here's what, what Paul is saying. He's talking about gifts. He's talking about service. He's talking about doing the will of God. But here's what governs it. And he's made the point about our individual parts. But here's what he says. Here's what he says. That all of these body parts function as the body of Christ. So I would argue that the health of the church corresponds to the consciousness of the individual parts, whatever it is that we are doing, to our collective identity, to the body of Christ. Now, Here's what we mean by this in, in, in I guess, the gist of it all. Is that whatever we do, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, Whatever you do, whether you eat or whether you drink, do it all to the glory of God. That's what, what Paul tells the Corinthians. Here's what we have to understand, that once we come to Christ, we must first see ourselves not just as a knee, but as the knee in the body of Christ. We're not just fingers. Paul is more specific about body parts in 1 Corinthians 12. We're not just a hand. We are a hand in the body of Christ. And the idea of the body of Christ is we know that the body of Christ is larger than Glendale. I hope we do. We know that the body of Christ is larger than the Baptist church. And again, I hope we do. We know that the body of church, the body of Christ is universal, but we're not universal. We're local. And therefore, because the body of Christ is universal, and it, is, it plays itself out in terms of local individual parts. It is important for us to know individually that I'm not just born again. I'm not just, I'm not just a gifted teacher. I'm a teacher in the body of Christ. I'm not just, uh, I'm not just, just benevolent as he talks about. Or I'm not just a prophet. I am, I am in the body of Christ. So therefore, I think that the health of the church corresponds, the health of the body corresponds to the individual parts understanding their collective identity as the body of Christ. In my church tradition that I grew up in, we used to have all of these annual days and um, one of the things, and we call it friendly rivalries, we used to have women's day and men's day. And they would raise money. And it was always a boast of who raised more. And, and I know it was in fun, but brothers and sisters, there is nothing ever that we should do as members of the body of Christ that's, that, that's, that is aimed at competing with any other member in the body of Christ. That's what I mean. So, so part of the whole idea, the fragmentation, and, and we'll talk in a moment about our individual functions. But what Paul is making absolutely clear here, he's talking about the individual functions and gifts, but whatever those gifts are, those gifts are tied to the corporate body of Christ. 
And even as we serve outside of the local church, even as we serve in the terms of our denomination and we serve with sometimes parachurch organizations, what we are doing is doing the will of the Father in the context of the body of Christ. So again, I repeat, the health of the body, health of the church, corresponds to the consciousness of the individual parts to their collective identity of the body of Christ. Once we know that we are his, then we have to respect that every other gift, every other part of the body is as equally a part of the body of Christ as we are. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians when he tells husbands to love their wives even as Christ has loved the church. And he says this, he says that we are to cherish our, our, our wives because they are, we are one in the flesh. And his rationale is this. No one hates his own flesh. Brothers and sisters, sometimes when it comes to our discussion of various issues within the church, sometimes when it comes to our dealings and service and so forth, we come with an unnecessarily combative spirit because we somehow exalt ourselves over the body and we don't see even problems that we have to confront. We don't see it as a problem of our body. We see it as yours. Brothers and sisters, when there's gossip in the church, that hurts the body. It's, 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 a, it's a shame against the body. And so the health of the church corresponds to the individual parts recognizing that we are a part of the, we are collectively the body of Christ. And so when we see things that need to be done, we're not pointing a finger. We're seeing a deficiency in the body of Christ. And we should approach the solution as being a part of the body of Christ. So that's where we begin. That's, that's what Paul gives us. And, and even though he, he just, again, he talks about function, what drives our function is the individual parts recognizing our part of the collective as the body of Christ. It's not auxiliary versus auxiliary. It's not this member versus that member. It's not deacons against preachers. And, and unfortunately, we have we have grown to live with that sort of dysfunction way too comfortably and way too long. Here's what Paul says. Here's what we are. Here's what we are. This gift, that gift, this person, that person, we are collectively the body of Christ. Uh, my sister had a friend growing up, Crystal. She was an interesting personality. And she would uh, put on lotion and her, her theory on putting on lotion is that she puts lotion on the parts that are seen. <laughs> you know, that was it. She Hands, face, and that was it. If it was long sleeves, she didn't get on the arms because, yeah, ain't nobody going to see it. And unfortunately, we see the body of Christ in a similar fashion. The only ones that we are pull, willing to put lotion on are the ones that we have a personal investment in. And, and I think part of the health of the church, we, and I've said this for, for many years, that we have measured 
the standard by which we measure the health and well-being of a church has been flawed for a very long time in far too many instances. We measure success, we measure numbers, we measure finances. But the healthy church is the one that recognizes that corporately we are the body of Christ. And when one part of the body has a problem, it's a problem for the whole body. When you, if you break, your, break a finger, the finger doesn't get a chance to go to the hospital by itself. Right? If it does, you have more than a broken finger. If you have a problem with a part of the body, the whole body sits there for the doctor to take care of the sore part. And so the health of the body corresponds to the consciousness of the individual parts recognizing their collective identity as the body of Christ, whether it's locally, denominationally, or even universally. Here's the second thing. The health of the body is compromised by the inflammation of the fallen ego that exalts itself over the body. The health of the body, if, if the health of the body corresponds to the individual parts recognizing that collectively we are the body, then what compromises the health of the body is the inflammation, and we know what inflammation is in our body. It's when one part of the body, because of disease or because of infection, it becomes swollen. It becomes irritated. And here's what Paul is pointing out, that the health of the body is compromised by the inflammation of the fallen ego that ultimately exalts itself over the body. Verse 3, verse 3, he says, for by the grace of God that is given to me, to, uh, given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to, but rather to think with sober judgment. See, and, and so here's part of the health, that what compromises the health of a local church and what compromises oftentimes denominations is when there's the inflammation of the fallen ego that either our giftedness or our personal offense, we exalt it over the overall health and well-being of the, part, of the body. In other words, we have such a bone to pick that we either take our toys and go home or we sit back and we will, because we're mad because somebody of something that somebody said or didn't say, or we want to tout our calling and our preference and our gift of service, we want to tout it over someone else. So those who come out to prayer will then somehow exalt themselves over those who don't rather than partnering with them and praying for them. Brothers and sisters, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying you're part of the body now. You're not an individual. In our fallen state, our will is inclined towards self and it's self-preservation above all things. I've often used this reference of Paul in 1 Corinthians when he deals with Christians that are going to court and suing one another. And Paul makes a very interesting point. He says, why aren't you willing to suffer the loss? Why aren't you willing to suffer the loss? Here's what he says, you who are the recipients of the mercies of God through the gospel, 
offer your bodies as living sacrifices so that you can determine and do the perfect will of God. But then he also says this, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world because the patterns of this world will pat you on the back and tell you you're right when you need to go to the cross and you need to repent. In other words, I think outsized fallen egos compromise the health of the local assembly. First church that I pastored was a church plant and the first year we were meeting in a park building. And we had one of the founders, one who approached me to, be, uh, to, to start this, this particular uh, work, was a deacon in the church. And uh, we had some issues, and I confronted him on the issues, and he got upset with me. And we were meeting in, in a park building, and we were, and so that meant we didn't have place to store stuff. So he was responsible for all of the communion stuff for First Sunday, and he and his wife would bring it on First Sunday. And to prove that his, his point to me, he goes off on a first Sunday. In fact, it was leading into, I'll never forget it, it was leading into Labor Day, Labor Day weekend. And he and his wife went up to the mountains, to their cabin in the mountains, and took the communion stuff with them so that the church was not able to serve communion on the Lord's Day. And then when he comes back, oh, I forgot. Of course, let's just say that was the end of his service. And, and, and the thing that we wanted to point out to him, and this is what I confronted him on, whatever your issue is, you are so hell-bent on trying to prove a point that you would deny the body of Christ. You're trying to prove how, how much power and authority you have, that you would deny the body of Christ the ability to sit down at the Lord's table. You're not fit or worthy to serve the body because you care more about you than you do about the body. Paul says, don't let anyone think more highly of himself than he ought. That includes the brother that was cheated who's willing to go to court and try to get his money back. He says, no, you can, you can lose that. We'll take up an offering and give you that. Because what you're doing is disrupting the harmony and the health of the body. You can't be, there's no, I, I tease with my wife because she went to a doctor and she calls, I'm just going to put her on blast on this, when she calls the big toe, the great toe. And I said, well, the doctor says, yeah, the, the great toe. I said, how vain. <laughs> how vain. Of any toe calling itself great. They're all ugly. <laughs> right? Except God made them so well, but they're fallen, so. The great toe. And part of the ill health of local churches is we've got too many great toes. Paul says, don't let anyone think more highly of yourself than you ought. And notice what he says, but rather with sober judgment. Brothers and sisters, sober judgment is what allows us to be humble enough 
to say when we're wrong. Sober judgment allows us to be confronted in love. Sober judgment allows us to hear sometimes what we don't want to hear. The health of the church, the health of the body of Christ, just like the health of your own physical body, is compromised when there's inflammation in vital organs of the body. And when the individual parts have an inflamed ego, then we compromise the health of every other part of the body. Here's the third and final thing. Paul also tells us about the distinctiveness of the parts and the functions. In verse 4, he reminds us of the distinctiveness. He says that in verse 4, using again the pattern of the human body, he says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function." We have many members. Here's what, here's the point. The distinctiveness of our gifts and functions is indicative of our need for the other parts. The distinctiveness of our gifts and functions is indicative of our neediness of the other body parts. Brothers and sisters, when God brings us into the body of Christ, We need, just as we need everything that is in Christ for the salvation of our souls, we need everything that's in the body for the health and well-being of that body. I know many Christians get mad at something and they say, I'm just not going to go down there anymore. They don't do this, that, and the other. First off, that's your inflamed ego. And secondly, your inflamed ego is cutting off what is needed by you and what's needed from you. The fact that our parts are different is indicative of our need of the other parts. The way Paul expresses it in Ephesians 4, he says, We are knitly joined together with each part supplying strength to the other as each one does its part. And the loud implication of that is when one part refuses to do its part, it is at the disruption of the whole body. We read again in 1 Corinthians where Paul in chapter 5 is addressing the brother who was overtaken in sin. And many of the people were saying, ah, well, you know, that's his, that's his business. That's, and, and Paul says, no, you don't get it. His problem is our problem. He brings, dis, he brings ill repute to the whole body. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? And so it is, brothers and sisters, God made us different. God gave us different functions, but he didn't give us those functions so that we can stand alone. He gave us those functions so that we would be able to serve. Now, I do think that sometimes we lose the sense of the gifts and functions that God has given to us within the body 
because we have, we, we've gotten into the, the habit of prepackaged ministry. In other words, we look on the denominational shelves or we look in the, the catalogs of Christian magazines and find out what's trendy and, this, and then just bring it to the church. In other words, we bring ministry to the church from the outside without beginning by looking on the inside. Service of the church begins by looking at the church. And brothers and sisters, you're not missing anything if you don't have the trendy ministries, but you do have people who are grounded in the gospel and loving one another as they have been loved by Christ. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to pay close attention to one another so that we can encourage and, 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 and strengthen one another and, and call them, help them in their service. We need people to be in our face. We need people to be in our face to tell us that God loves us. We need, to, we need the body, other body parts to show us when we're wrong. Because ultimately, brothers and sisters, individually, we are members of the body of Christ. And it's interesting to me that you hear all of these sanctimonious Christians and teetotalers, well, no, you shouldn't drink and you shouldn't smoke because you don't want to defile the temple of God. And then we get on the phone, or we go on Facebook, or we go on Twitter, or we engage in our personal gatherings, and we speak vile things about our brothers and sisters, what they wore, what they didn't wear, what he said, what she said. And we don't think, we, we think a cigarette is more defiling to the body than a gossip or troublemaker. Brothers and sisters, we are the body of Christ. God individually ministers to us his tender mercies so that he can corporately bring us into the body of his son. And just as we are covered by his righteousness, we are connected to his vital organs. Therefore, our responsibility is to carry out our functions, not so that men and women can sing our praises, not so that we can become famous in church circles. We are to do our duty because we are honored to be a part of the body of Christ. And when one part of the body shines, it's to the glory of the whole body. And when one part of the body is soiled and stained, the whole body bears the mark. We can say, well, you know, well, I, I'll wash my hands, but no, when we shower, we need to clean the whole body because the whole body is important. And as Christians, God has placed us into the whole body of Christ 
So no, we're not comfortable with squabbles in our local settings. And we're not comfortable with denominational fights. And we're not comfortable with anything that brings ill repute to the whole body. Because we are one body in Christ. And you say, well, that's your opinion. So that's why Paul says, and don't be conformed to this world. Because that's the norm for them. But be transformed by the renewing of your body. Or the renewing, I should say, of your mind. And our minds are renewed by the announcement of God's, not only of God's saving grace in salvation, but our minds are renewed as we see the beauty of his entire body. That's one of the reasons I love mission work and I love work outside of the borders so that we can see. Sometimes we get so caught up in what's going on in our little portion of the vineyard that we don't see the whole vineyard. Sometimes we step back and see the body and its beauty. And here again is the grace of God. He allows you and I to be functioning, serving parts of such a beautiful body. And he receives it through the grace that's given to us in Christ. In other words, God sees our works. And because our function is in Christ, he purges all the dirt off of it. And he sees it as being good. And here's who we serve. The function and the health of the body is for the glory of Christ and for the good of the individual parts. Here's what we are. One body in Christ. Now, here's what you can make it. You can make it stronger. You can make it you can make it, make it more functionable. You can make it, you can beautify it. Or you can mar it. But either way, we're the body of Christ. And you know what? God sees us as beautiful. We ain't there yet. But he sees us as beautiful. And, 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 and brothers and sisters, when he reveals us, guess what? We will be beautiful, but in the time being, we are striving for the glory of the body and the good of its individual parts. And I pray that that's our goal as individual members and as a corporate body that belongs to Christ. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you again in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray that we are reminded that we indeed have been bought with the price and we're not our own. We thank you for saving us from your wrath and saving us from our own radical individualism 
and you have engrafted us into a body. You have taken taken the motherless and you've placed her in a body where she has children. You've taken us as orphans and you've given us your maternal and paternal love. You've given us extra shoulders. You've given us access to others' gifts. We pray that we would see our place in this body, not through our own fallen selfish ambitions, not through inflamed sinful egos. We pray that we would see it through the precious wounds of our Savior so that we would be driven by exhorting, edifying, encouraging, and comforting others. Let us see ourselves at the service of our brothers and sisters for your glory. Because you who were rich became poor for us. We pray that we would pour ourselves out in serving others. Thank you again for your words. Thank you for those who are gathered. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now we come to the part.